0: You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture, freaky films and why we frickin' love
1: them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up. And join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia, and other fantasy worlds. It's gonna be a wild ride.
0: Welcome to this week's edition of What's Wrong with This Picture? This week we're looking at The Swimmer, a film from 1968 directed by Frank Perry. It stars Burt Lancaster as Ned Merrill, Janet Langard as Julie, and Janice Rule as Shirley. Just to give you uh, the basics of the plot to start with, Ned is an ad man in suburban Connecticut and when the film opens, uh, we see him, Bert Lancaster, barefoot and wearing swimming trunks and he's dropped in on some friends. He's clearly been away for some while, but they're glad to see him. He uses their pool and decides he can swim home using neighbours' pools to get home to his wife and daughters. Over the course of the film, we see him in 10 pools and things happen.
1: <laughs> they do indeed happen. <laughs> so,
0: Gary, why do, you, why do we think this is a weird film?
1: Um, it, it, right, uh, where do we start? Okay, the, the biggest weird, I think, let's start with number one. It's a complete subversion of Burt Lancaster's on-screen persona. Um, Burt Lancaster, um, for those who do not know and remember him, is um, was a major Hollywood star and later became a major Hollywood producer and star and he was a romantic lead an action man um he was the front of things like trapeze and, and you know circus pictures he was all often bare torsoed uh, rippling muscles um and a legendary grin um this beautiful smile that spoke of confidence and you know uh, i don't know just hollywood star quality um the the story of The Swimmer, um, and obviously we're going to get further into the plot, is essentially about midlife crisis and it's about the disintegration of a man in front of your very eyes. And in order to do that, Burt Langster has to give one of the great selfless performances where he takes his typical persona and twists it. And um, it's weird watching him do it. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I mentioned that he's, he's in swimming trunks and barefoot. The whole movie—we never see him in in any clothes. Yeah, and as as you mentioned, he was this action man. He was an acrobat in his early life. He still got this kind of torso. He's fifty-five mm. when this film is made, mm. but but looks good. Now I mean, he, he looks amazing. Good. Looks good for a fifty-five-year-old. Um, and that grin is featured quite a lot, but it becomes ever more desperate. Yeah, his his famous blue eyes are featured quite a lot, and there's often extreme close-ups that kind of often denote. A kind of a reverie, a dream, or a or a flashback. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's weird because weird things happen in it. Um, there's a scene with nudists,
1: yeah. and Bert <laughs> Lancaster
0: strips off and is is nude with a newspaper to to cover his Lancasters, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, yep that's one of the strange scenes
0: there's a scene where he races a horse quite joyfully yeah. he races a horse in a field and looks kind of happy with well, the well I was result. going to
1: bring that up Lindsay, because horses there is a horse theme um, so yep uh, but races a horse and later on um, he and um, uh, someone who we will come to very uh, very soon uh, start literally doing show jumping themselves um, over sort of a, uh, this little course Um what do you think? <laughs> yeah, what's the the horse symbolism? Literally? Yeah,
0: I think we should we should clarify. When he races the horse, he's on foot. He's yeah. not on the horse. Yeah, he's on absolutely. Foot. And when him and the other character are racing around this paddock, jumping over show jumping jumps, they're also on foot. So yeah. they don't ride horses. I guess horses depict. I guess a freedom, a freedom to roam, a kind of a carefree life, because these horses don't have kind of saddles and bridles and things on them. Yeah. They are, they, you know, the, the horse that we see yeah. is 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 running free. So I guess that's that's a theme. Um, I think it's also something about masculinity, because it's this big, kind of powerful horse, and that's how Ned continues to see himself, kind of despite the evidence. But this is another reason I think it's weird, because to me those are all very kind of on the nose and very unsubtle references to kind mm. of masculinity and freedom and I think this film is oddly on the nose because it's it, it, it's clear it's it's about Ned's kind of mental decay Ned's physical decay as the, as the film goes on and so what do we see? We see decaying leaves you yeah. see it's autumn because this is the autumn of Ned's life although he thinks it's the summer so do you know what I mean it's it's just so kind of like hmm how can we picture disintegration let's show something disintegrating yeah. it's, it's yeah. just so on the nose and to me that Those kind of filmmaking decisions also make it kind of quite weird.
1: Yeah, there, there's, um, I mean, I, you know, just want to, before we leave the horse race um, alone, um, perhaps the weirdest thing about that scene for me is that, you know, uh, Bert sort of, it's a draw, really, uh, I think, between Bert and the horse. And uh, Bert finally stops running and the horse runs on a bit further. And it shots as if basically the Bert, wa- Bert waves at the horse and kind of, you know, and the horse kind of looks back and gives him a nod. <laughs> and it's. You what? Um there's one scene where two of the characters and we have to say, uh, Neddy Cheryl, um, Burt Langster's character, is in every scene. Um so two of the characters are walking and it just goes completely out of focus. I mean completely yeah. out of focus. Um in order to denote that Ned's life is heading out of focus. Yeah. Um you know, and, and yeah, many moments of like that which are very odd. I think <clears throat> one of the Perhaps I should say a little bit about the director and the writer. Um, The director is Frank Perry. And Frank Perry um, had burst on the scene with an independent film in 1962. And this was one of his first kind of being given the the keys to the kingdom to Hollywood filmmaking. Um, His later hits were 1972's A Play As It Lays, which is based on a a Joan Didion novel. And um, 1981's Mommy Dearest, uh, which has obviously become almost the catchphrase for bad motherhood. Um, it's uh, the film um, about Joan Crawford and her daughter and Joan Crawford's cruel maternal ways. And that was a, his most successful film. Um Frank Perry was um, was part of a, a husband and wife team on this film. Uh, his wife, Eleanor Perry, uh, wrote the movie. And Eleanor Perry was um, a very forthright feminist campaigner who gained some notoriety, apart from her actual skills as a writer, uh, for turning up the 1972 Cannes Film Festival and throwing paint over a uh, poster of a New Fellini movie, which had a nude woman on it. <laughs> so um, th- this was obviously... Uh, a really interesting sort of choice for these two um, to make a film about. It's based on a John Cheever short story, and John Cheever is sort of like, you know, an American king of short story writing. Um, The the story was originally published in The New Yorker just a few years earlier. And um, Frank Perry has obviously caught somewhere, Lindsay, don't you think, between there's a new thing coming. It's the 1960s. (laughs) <laughs> there's new thoughts, there's new ways of doing yeah. things, we're questioning society in movies, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, and camera angles and music and uh, an old-fashioned Hollywood way of doing things, and it's that that gives it this weird, it's like it doesn't know quite what it is.
0: Yeah, and I think to give him his due, Burt Lancaster is aware, I think he's got a foot in both camps, uh, a barefoot in both <laughs> in both those camps. Um yeah. Is, is it time for more plot, do
1: you think? I think you should do more plot.
0: OK. So I mentioned that he swims through ten pools over the course of the film. And at pool number four, he meets Julie, who's his ex-babysitter, 20 years old and had a crush on him. You know we can't fully be in mid midlife crisis, film unless there's an inappropriately young woman. And this is Julie, um, who agrees to accompany him for part of the way... We start to notice that every pool that Ned's visiting, because these are these are all kind of pools of his neighbours and friends, so he knows pretty much everybody whose house he's going to, he's starting to get less and less of a warm welcome. Um, and there's quite heavy hints about we haven't seen him for a year or two, where has he been? And to me, this is another part of the, of the weirdness of the film, is a mystery. We don't mm. know where he's been, we yeah. kind of don't know yeah. what's brought him to this stage. But he is starting to get more and more confused. So he's confused about the time of year. He says something like, marigolds don't bloom this late, this this early. Uh, he, he thinks it's earlier than it is. Mm. And of course, this is another on the nose. He thinks he's younger than he is. Mm. He thinks life is at a different stage than it is. But um, it, it turns out in the course of this part of the plot that he's been fired from his job as an ad man. And also, every time he mentions his wife and daughters, other characters just exchange looks. So there's some... There's some mystery there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, In the John Cheever short story, uh, there's one line in it. um, It's called where he, he calls Ned a vague or says that Ned has a vague and modest idea of himself as a legendary figure. (laughs) And I think it's sort of, that neatly sums up the tone of this film. So what we're watching is a man who believes he is an extraordinary man, an alpha male, uh, you know, a master of the universe, uh, women adore him, um, all his neighbours think he's the coolest thing that's ever lived, um, and he's absolutely on the up and up, and he has a family that absolutely adore him too. Um, And what we're actually watching with each scene, where he turns up at each house, is the the exposure of that lie, and he has lied to himself so relentlessly yeah. that there's obviously some form of <clears> mental <throat> breakdown at play here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, can I can I just say on that yeah. one, one of the, the lines that tickled me earlier on? So this is this is at one of the earlier pools. So he, he meets some neighbors, and um, so he does a lot of the women early on. They do they do flirt with him. They do kind of mm. give him the time of day, and one of them says uh, something like sex doesn't sap a man's strength and he replies, Haha or else I'd be in a wheelchair.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So he's just got this idea of him as a stud, I guess yeah. that's another horse reference. Yeah. He has yeah. this oh, idea yeah. Oh, yeah. As, yeah. The neighbor, as the neighbour as the neighbourhood nice <laughs> stud. Um and he tries to maintain that kind of over over the film. But you mentioned it was a kind of tumultuous time in mm, in, in, yeah. in, in film. What what's, so what's coming up?
1: So I think the The big thing to point out here uh, is that the year before had seen the release of Bonnie and Clyde, and perhaps more pertinently in this case, The Graduate. And those two movies in Hollywood uh, were the movies that uh, are credited with changing everything and bringing in the period that we now sort of almost know as Easy Riders Raging Bulls. This period where directors, a new kind of young director, was almost in charge of Hollywood, definitely until kind of Jaws sort of changed the rules again. Um, This was a period that was obviously the Godfather and, you know, etc. A lot of these movies were, you know, kind of quite macho. um, And a lot of the figures that uh, are now talked about in these glowing terms as amazing directors were quite macho. The Graduate was a massive hit the year before. It concerned uh, a young man. Um, who spends quite a lot of the film in a swimming pool, yeah, um, and who lives in the upper middle class suburbs, and is beset by ennui about his his circumstances, yeah, and the older people in the film are exposed as empty and hypocritical and with narrow pointless aspirations for someone of the younger generation. Um, It was a massive commercial hit, um, even though it starred a complete newcomer, Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman was, of course, small, um, plain, uh, a very normal looking Jewish guy. A year later, you know, they put out The Swimmer with a huge star in it. Um, It's takes place in lots of swimming pools in an upper middle upper middle class uh, neighborhood and where the lifestyle of everybody around is being exposed as empty and blah 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 blah, blah, blah uh, and it bombs um and i think partly it's because young people wanted to watch young people rebelling against the older generation but why on earth would an older person want to go and watch his generation being given a good kicking and why would the younger generation line up to see that why would you want to see your dad yeah. Having a midlife crisis in yeah. front of you in the cinema, yeah, and I think that's what's going on there.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think there are lots of uh, links with the um, with the Graduate because you know a famous line from the Graduate is uh, he gets advice from one of his dad's pals and he says, uh, or maybe it's his dad actually. I got one word for you, Benjamin plastics, plastics. and uh, <laughs> you know plastics actually comes up. Once or twice in in, in yep. this film, in this film as well, but just I guess to show the the emptiness of this consumerist lifestyle that they're living up in the up in the Connecticut suburbs. Um, he meets a woman fairly early on who he knew her husband before, and now she's remarried. Anyway, she's she's kind of looking around at all her worldly goods, and she sees her new husband kind of riding up on a, a ride up lawnmower, and she just looks at this lawnmower fondly and says. I've got everything I yeah, ever wanted. Yeah,
1: oh my God. Uh, you
0: know, this, this, this yeah. st- status symbol lawnmower is just the height of her, of her ambitions. She's got everything she ever wanted.
1: Now, I think a little bit of context, which as well gives you know, it gives a bit of context to why this film is such a savage film, is that Frank Perry was ra- born and raised in Westport, Connecticut. Right. The film is shot in Westport, Connecticut. Right. Um, the savaging of uh, the upper middle classes in America at that point, um, because the clothes, the hair... The attitudes, the obsession with alcohol, uh, the obsession with a sort of empty party culture, which doesn't seem to ever head out of their immediate environment. Um, There's a kind of complete lack of values there. And even though Ned Merrill is the person you're watching being um, humiliated in front of your eyes, um, it's actually much more critical of all the people that he's meeting. I think, apart from possibly Julie who will come to you in a little while.
0: Well let's come to Julie right now. So Julie Perfect. Julie is the babysitter, so let's have a, a little bit more plot. Um, uh, yeah, so he, at one point he says he says to Julie he's obviously flattered by her interest in him and is and obviously thinking well hey I'm a, I'm a young I'm a young stud I can kind of flirt with this woman but he presents it in his head as he's all very kind of chivalrous about it and he says to her at some point oh I just want to look after you you know and she's got a job in the city he says oh the city can be a dangerous place how about if I travel with you every morning and walk you to your office and we have lunch every day and you can tell me about your day and she's starting to kind of look around yeah. her and go Uh I don't think my what boyfriend now? would
1: like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Because I mean, she's she's been quite open. They have had, they have, they have been quite flirty. She said that when she was young, she stole a shirt of his. She used mm-hmm. to wear it. She used to smell it. So I mean, she is being quite overt. That you know, she probably wouldn't be averse to to something happening yeah. between them, even if it's just a physical thing for this day. Um, but when he starts in on the, I really want to look after you. And at one point, he holds her head and he says, uh, "Let me just check." He says. I won't ever let you get scared or hurt. And at the time, he's both scaring her and, and hurting her because yeah. he won't let go of her head. So she, in the end, she scarpers because she sees that there's something kind of quite, quite wrong about this. And although they've had a couple of swims together and they've had a run round the paddock, um, she's like, I'm starting to realise this guy's nuts and I'm off home. So uh, she, she leaves. Yeah. But um, uh, he really is starting to unravel. So the next pool he visits is. Some friends of his who are away, they've got a young son who's there with the maid and the pool is empty because the family don't want the young son, he's not a strong swimmer, they don't want him to fall in while they're away. So Bert and this young kid, sorry, Ned and this young kid, swim across this empty pool. They do the actions as if they're swimming across this empty pool. So he's he's clearly kind of starting to, to unravel and we're starting to see more and more clearly that he is kind of at his wits end. And the next person he visits is his ex-mistress, Shirley. Uh, Shirley's an actress who's been away so although all the neighbours seem to understand and know what's happened to Ned and his family Shirley doesn't really know that Mm. but uh, she's not very pleased to see him as you might imagine and they have a big fight and she sends him on his way Mm. he goes home via a public pool where he's humiliated once more Mm -hmm. um, crosses a freeway in his trunks and his bare feet um, and finally ends, ends up at home. And at the end, we realise that his home is has been empty for years. Mm. It's dilapidated. There are broken windows. There's no one there. There's weeds all over. He's made a big deal earlier about how much his, his daughters kind of care for him. And he talks about the tennis court. The tennis court by now is totally ruined and flooded, but that doesn't stop the camera looking at the tennis court. I don't know if you remember this yeah bit. And we hear the kind of thwack of ghostly tennis balls. And the camera does that thing like you do at Wimbledon it goes yeah, from left yeah, to right, yeah. to left, to right, to left, to right, <laughs> while we're watching a non tennis match happening on a non tennis court. Yeah. Um, Another example of the weirdness. But at the end, of course, Ned is totally alone. It's all been a lie. His children don't respect him. His wife, presumably, divorced. We still don't know where he's been or what's happened to him. But we understand that his journey home has been an absolute fantasy, a reverie that Absolutely. was never going to come true.
1: And I think, right, so this is the crystallisation of the weird, um, <clears throat> which, whether it's deliberate or not, <clears throat> and I think it's not deliberate, the film is this strange mixture of the very beautiful and the very ugly. So I think the be- the, the ending is extremely beautiful. Uh, I think the way it is shot, um, finally the music works. We'll come back to the yeah. music. Um, there's an amazing shot going through a broken window um, and showing this dilapidated house and just a pile of old stuff in the middle of the room, which really hits you hard of like, oh, I've been watching something. I really have been watching a lie. Um, and this broken man um, kind of slumped on the doorstep. And of course, by this time, uh, and just to sort of backtrack a bit, they've had this weird scene in the paddock where they're him and Julie are show jumping um, and leaping over there. And it's shot like bizarrely with this kind of manic sort of joy. So concentration on Bert's Bert Lancaster's famous smile. And then, of course, the last jump, uh, he goes over on his ankle. And for the rest yeah. of this movie, he is limping um, uh, you know, through these fields and across these pools and then over this highway. And, of course, the weather gets darker and darker. Yeah. And by the time he hits his old house, it's absolutely pissing down with rain. And it, it's really beautifully done. On the other hand, <laughs> you have the Marvin Hamlish soundtrack.
0: Oh, the music. Oh, man. Please... So- Tell us about the music yeah, and how, well, uh, how enjoyable it's not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah. So Marvin Hamish, um, you know, if you've not heard of him, he he was a, a, such a successful uh, composer of Broadway shows and film soundtracks that he uh, is a rare holder of what's called the EGOT. He won an Emmy, he won a Grammy, he won an Oscar and he won a Tony. And he also won a Pulitzer Prize and I have no idea what that Pulitzer Prize is for because as far as I know he wasn't a journalist but there we go. Um, so massively successful successful hollywood figure but this was his first movie soundtrack and it mitigates whereas site Cy- you know we go back to the graduate the graduate was helped by a perfect soundtrack for the vibe it was trying to put over which is this very intimate pop folk soundtrack from simon and garfunkel which it made simon and garfunkel huge simon and garfunkel made the graduate huge it was the perfect symbiosis um this film's music which is like an old-fashioned 1950s, every emotion being flashed up kind of soundtrack just mitigates against everything modern about the movie.
0: But that's the same as the filming, isn't it? It's like, it's not subtle. You know, we want to express melancholy. Oh, let's have some melancholy music.
1: <laughs> we'll tell you
0: how to feel. I think. I mean, and some the,
1: decaying leaves. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And the, the, I mean, the music is routinely awful. But um, one, I guess, exception to it's still awful, but it's at least it's not these kind of uh, lachrymose violins. It's when they're in the paddock and mm. they're doing the the jumps mm. with the and it's kind of a it's a cowboy type. It's it's kind of a um, magnificent. Seven, yeah. type parody of jaunty cowboy music, yeah, very odd choice, I think.
1: Very, very odd choice, indeed. And I was sort of, it made me think a little bit about um montages because every time you see a montage, you know, people parodying yeah. it and yeah. taking a piss in movies, it's always an 80s montage. And, you know, that's hilariously funny for everyone. You know, all 80s films, they all had montages, whatever. But there was a kind of 60s montage as well. And I think it's summed up by uh, the montage in The Swimmer, which is in The Paddock. The montage in a, a truly appalling film called Charlie, um, which is about a man with learning disabilities who is suddenly given, uh, you know, made a genius. I, I, honestly, I won't go on about it. Um, but there's this awful <laughs> montage in it um, where him and a, a woman he's supposed to love, you know, do gambling in the fields, love things. Um, and then there's the montage um, from a year later than The Swimmer um, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is backed by um, Raindrops Keep Falling oh, yeah. on My Head, of, you know, Know, uh Catherine ross and paul newman and robert redford gambling around on a push bike um these are just terrible pieces of filmmaking but the only one of those three montages that stands up is the one from the swimmer because yeah. there is something sick and wrong about it and the yeah. filmmaker knows at least there's something sick and wrong about yeah. it you're not laughing yeah. at its ineptitude you're laughing with the director laughing at the character yeah, yeah. and it, it's it's the it, and, you know, Marvin Hamlish's music is is awful, but it isn't enough to ruin it, <laughs> let's yes. just say. Yeah. And I guess a, a one thing I want to ask you, Lindsay, is because obviously we mentioned midlife crisis earlier, but I wondered if you felt there was a link um, looking forward to things like Mad Men and the idea yeah. of midlife crisis, male midlife yeah,
0: crisis. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, I mean, I, I think... Without the swimmer, I'd be interested to know if... God, I can't remember the guy who did Mad Men Matthew something, isn't it? Oh, yeah. What's his name? Oh, I can't remember. Matthew Weiner. Is yes. that wrong? Yes. Yeah. Let's,
1: Sounds let's, like a gag, right?
0: Yeah. Let's call him <laughs> Matthew Weiner and laugh about that. But um, the guy who uh, kind of came up with Mad Men... I would be astonished if he hadn't seen The Swimmer because it yeah. seems or at least wasn't aware of some of the story because another link with Connecticut is that John Cheever, who wrote the story um, and was called The Chekhov of the, the Suburbs and I had to look that up oh, because nice uh, yeah, I didn't do Chekhov at school. As you know, I did woodwork. But well, so. what's Star Trek got <laughs> to do with it then? <laughs> <laughs> he was called the Chekhov of the sub- suburbs and and what Chekhov did in Russian literature apparently was uh, to look at things in kind of very much everyday, homely details to make sure that those were included and to come up with what was called a zero ending so an anticlimactic climax right things okay. just end stories just end yeah. and and I, I you know i read a bit of john Cheever when i was younger and, and i seem to remember that that is the case and that's often the case i think with american short stories raymond carver i think does the same yeah, thing yeah um so just the end it's a kind of slice of life you don't get a kind of a resolution. Yeah. Um so John Cheever lived in Ossining in upstate New York and Don Draper's family in Mad Men lived in Ossining uh, no in upstate way, New York.
1: No way. Well, that can't be a coincidence. You wouldn't have thought so. Um one thing that definitely um because I've been reading a lot about, you know, 1999 and, and the fact that a lot of people believe it to be, you know, the, the best American movie year ever, and we'll argue about that uh, sometime with 1939. But anyway, <laughs> um, one of the huge hits of that year, critical and commercial, was American Beauty. Yeah. And I think I've only, I, it's not long ago since I re-watched American Beauty and loved it, and I was watching The Swimmer this time, and it was kind of like the granddad of American yeah, Beauty. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, the point is with American Beauty is it is a fantastic film, um, but you now watch it with the knowledge of what Kevin Spacey has been accused of. And it all the scenes where he is flirting with a very young woman yeah, <coughs> yeah. feel even more creepy than yeah, they did when you first yeah, watched the film. Yeah. And the scenes where Burt Lancaster I I, I mean it's a fantastic film all round. The ending is super memorable. But for me, the key passage of the whole film, because she's the only remotely sympathetic character, is Julie, and how Burt Lancaster, how brilliant it is at creeping us out. Yeah, because he's a beautiful man. Yeah, you know that he he plays that a different way, and it's a typical Hollywood older man is yeah, you know, yeah, swaggering yeah. older yeah, man yeah. who seduces, you know, pretty young. No, this is it's nasty. It's horrible. It's creepy. Um, it it's. There's something really profoundly being written by Eleanor Perry about, you know, something that would become to be known as Me Too.
0: Yeah, see, I don't, I I, I could see that. I I don't get the feeling, I don't get a sex kind of pest feeling off it. I get a kind of very needy, needy man. He's looking to be saved and he thinks he can be saved by saving someone. Or protecting someone. I'm I'm
1: going to posit the big theory, Lindsay, that needy, male neediness and male sex male sex pestery are the same <laughs> one and the same thing. Um, As I, I was
0: saying to you this morning, you know, uh, look at me, give me attention. Says uh, says ninety eight percent of men since the dawn of time. Yeah, pay attention to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, really. And you know, it, it's it, what he's doing is this weird mixture of uh, of sexual come on and paternalism.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he he says to come to Daddy. Yes, yeah, and that's right. And I mean that, but that's that's kind of key for him, really, because he says about his own daughters at one point. uh, So this is when he's swimming with a little kid in the empty pool, and he says, "Those those kids of mine think I got all the answers. Those kids of mine think I'm just about it." And it it turns out, you know, from one of the neighbours that his daughters don't even talk to him anymore, yeah. that they got arrested for drunk driving. He goes to visit some woman who whose son is dead, whose adult son is dead or yeah. Yeah. something's happened That's to quite him and again. And it, it's quite mysterious. And she, she, she basically accuses Ned of having done something, which he's got very little memory of and she said don't you ever come back here so what's he done to her exactly. son we don't know
1: that's the first I think that's the first scene really which is kind of like okay we really see where this yeah. is going um, he he just Ned has no idea this woman despises him yeah. um, It, we, we get the feeling like, like you say that his someone who was once seen as Ned's friend is now dead that he didn't even f- visit him in hospital yeah. that he paid no attention yeah. and he has no memory of this whatsoever yeah and it's kind of like, oh, oh.
0: Yeah, and we see that again when he visits the Hallorans, who are the nudist couple. And I should say, you know, they're not a glamorous nudist couple in their 30s. These people are in their 60s. Yeah. Um, and they're sitting, you know, it's all done very tastefully. This isn't kind of modern times. Uh, so we see them from the back, and I mm. think the guy's reading a newspaper or mm. something. And then when Ned comes up, he's, he takes off his trunks kind of in long shot, and he's got a newspaper and his trunks in, in, in front of him, so he's, he's kind of covered up. But we do see the Lancaster butt, as he as he mm, turns around yep. which is interesting but the <laughs> heart you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I don't know Lindsay what, what you explained to me
0: <laughs> it's interesting you know from a cinematic I, point of view that uh, he's uh, questioning his own star persona
1: yeah and also okay. you get to see
0: his butt <laughs> beautiful it's a double whammy <laughs> no you don't see his double whammy at all. Hey. He's, he's got a newspaper in front of his double whammy um the Hallorans, <laughs> the nudest couple, think that he has come to borrow money again. So he's yes. obviously been there to borrow money before. And there's a there's quite an awkward scene where he meets their chauffeur before he sees them. Oh yeah. Who's a, yeah. Is a is a who's a who's a black guy. And he says very confidently, Steve, Steve and of course it's not Steve, it's another person. Um and he's totally convinced that he's he's seeing Steve. And then when he's talking to the chauffeur and he realises it's another person, he said, oh, you know, I miss old Steve. He had a he had a lovely big kind of bass singing voice and all this. And the chauffeur kind of looks at him under kind of hooded eyes and says, and don't tell me. And a very natural sense of rhythm. And Ned's like, yeah, yeah, he did. Like he sees nothing wrong with this question. No. And I thought that was quite interesting that even in 1968, there's this, there's this kind of notion of of the kind of under underlying racism, and that even then, that phrase like a natural sense of rhythm, which everybody used today as a kind of trope for how racist somebody is, mm. even then it was a trope for how racist someone Absolutely. was.
1: Absolutely. So I think this is a really good time to mention that. Um, Once you read into um, a bit of detail about The Swimmer, it was kind of sabotaged. Um, Basically, Frank Perry and Eleanor Perry, this was a progressive couple. And they've plainly set out to make a progressive film. Um, But the producer of the film is Sam Spiegel, who's an old school producer. He's a relic from the old days. yeah. And um, he's had three, won three Academy Awards. And he's certainly going to be the kind of producer that's going to turn around to a young, uh, you know, thrusting young director-writer pairing and tell them that he knows best what works so uh, it got through the first shoot um, and you know they saw the first sort of version uh, of the movie and Spiegel freaked um, at whatever that was and fired Perry mm. um, and um, then hired a very young uh, soon to be very successful himself um, Sidney Pollock, to come in and reshoot various scenes Um. Don't know how what Sam Spiegel thought of Sidney Pollock's reshoots and yeah. don't know how much difference they made, but Spiegel hated the end result so much he insisted that his own name was taken off the credits of the film he produced. <laughs> so basically, a film sabotaged from the inside. Um, it really does sort of reinforce the idea that actually this was a film which didn't know what it's doing. The producer was on one tip yeah the director and the writer were on another tip uh the money men were probably on yet another one and um and the end result is something that's just very weird and one of those things that that it slips into obscurity but as the years went by more and more influential critics picked up on it and said yeah yeah but it's weird good yeah yeah. It's weird good. And and the most famous, probably the most famous American critic of all, apart from Pauline Kale, uh Roger Ebert, um, you know, called it brilliant and mesmerising. And from that moment on, it started to slowly pick up a cult yeah. following and started to be kind of recognised as, oh no, hang on, this was this was so, a really yeah. brave, great movie. Uh, flawed, but brave and great.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, as well, you know, uh, Burt Lancaster himself was quite a, a famous a famous lib- liberal. Yep. He protested the Vietnam War. He kind of spoke up for racial justice. He funded uh, something that uh, Martin Luther King had done. Mm-hmm. He spoke out against yep. AIDS at a time when none of these Hollywood guys were sticking up for Rock Hudson who, who had AIDS. Yep. He was he was like this, this big... This big voice. Um, in fact, in 1973, he was on Nixon's enemies list.
1: Wow, really? yeah. is that true? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. It's the uh, the
0: ulti- ultimate accolade if you're
1: a liberal. Yeah, you're totally. on Nixon's enemies list. <laughs> totally. <laughs> He's made it.
0: <laughs> well, one other one other thing I just want to bring up, though, is uh, despite the amount of time he spends in the water and, and, and swimming, he actually didn't like the water. He was scared of the water. He'd had some yeah, kind of brilliant. issue when he was a kid, um, which meant he could swim but couldn't swim very well and in fact he had to spend four months with the uh university of uh, california swim coach who says he says on this kind of making of uh making of the swimmer uh, documentary that i saw he says his swimming was horrible so, <laughs> <laughs> he basically had to had to spend a lot of time on his on his technique and on his breathing just to make sure that things looked right and actually he ended up being on being on set as well and mm. um, i don't know if you noticed this, but. Uh, Bert Lancaster, not maybe. Maybe it's Ned. Maybe it's Bert. I don't know. Mm. He ends up much more sunburnt by the end of yeah. the film than he is at the start. It's clever. Is that Ned?
1: I think so. I think... Or is that Bert, who's actually sunburnt? Well, I think. I think there's some clever makeup going on there. I think they don't go down the road of, you know, going, you know, it's Jekyll and Hyde, yeah. you know, and, and blow it. But by the end of the film, he, he looks older, he looks tireder. Um, he, it, there's just been some subtle makeup used because he does look at the beginning of the film like, you know, no 55-year-old man could yeah. be more healthy, vital yeah, and yeah. athletic than this man. And by the end, he does not look like that. Yeah, he does look broken. Uh, He looks broken Um, and it's really subtly done. And I wondered, Lindsay, if you you agree with this because I was sort of thinking about the whole thing, you know, the big conceit of Ned's is I'm going to swim around the entire county. The swimming pool's are tiny. Yeah. <laughs> By the time But Langster has done his Olympic style dive into the pool, he's at the other end. Yeah. Yeah. He is not swimming, you know, some great length of time. He's doing a lot more running. Yeah. And, you know, it. it it's kind of, there's an irony in that as well. Yeah, I think.
0: absolutely. I mean, one of the exceptions to that is the pretty much the third glass pool he's in, maybe, which is a, a massive one. And there's a big society party going yeah. on there. And it's one of these huge swimming pools. It's got a kind of retractable roof. There's all kinds of people there. Nobody is swimming. They're all standing. And around the swim pool in kind of sports coats, drinking their dry martinis yeah, and things absolutely. like that. Um and actually look look quick for a young Joan Rivers yeah, who's, in this, incredible. who's in this scene. And she says to him uh, something like, uh he says, oh, let's, let's go away. And she says, oh, you're just like every man I've ever met. And he says, I'm just going to look at the particular
1: quote yeah, for that. Yeah, look at your notes, babes. Look yeah. at your notes.
0: He, he, Joan says, you're just like any other man. He says, no, I'm a very special human being, noble and splendid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like... Wow. Yes, yes, you wow. are. But, but yeah, it's just... Um, I just love it. I just love
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there was something else I was going to mention there and now it's popped right out of my head. Um, But I think um, what I sort of just want to say about the swimmer before we start to move to the end of this is I really do think there was, it's a massively overlooked film about the male crisis, about the crisis of masculinity. Um, The fact that it's the 1960s and I, I, don't think you know i think there's still a same sort of crisis of ma- masculinity now uh in the 2020s yeah. um i think burt langster uh pulls it off every bit of as beautifully in a less accomplished film as um let's say kevin spacey did in american beauty or um uh, um, you know, it was pulled off in Breaking Bad by, oh my God, who's in Breaking Bad? Brian Cranston. Thank you. Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. I think Burt uh performance is the equal of those. Um, I think he also has to carry a film that is very flawed. Um, and if his performance hasn't worked. Oh, and that was the last thing I was going to mention, Lindsay. Yeah. It's booze.
0: Yeah. It's booze. Yeah, yeah.
1: All of these people do. Apparently, I mean, you're not told, you know, you assume it's a Saturday or a Sunday and these people... I think it's a Sunday you know. afternoon,
0: they say at one point. Oh, right. They say yeah. it's Sunday
1: afternoon. All everyone is doing is getting drunk and all everyone is doing is trying to get drunk enough so that they can flirt with someone they're not supposed to flirt yeah. with uh, yeah. in front of their own partner. Yeah. Um, it, The people he's swimming through are despicable. Yeah. With the possible exception of Julie, they're despicable. Uh, selfish and boring and perpetually drunk
0: yeah and is there is there a small part of you though gary that that's like i'd love to sit around in the sunshine by my own pool with a <laughs> drinks trolley
1: i would love to but nowhere near westport connecticut in 1968 <laughs> i think is my answer
0: i don't know you'd probably do quite well among the housewives there
1: I don't know, I'm a bit chubby. I I can't really do the (laughs) Burt Lancaster thing.
0: But neither can anybody else. You know, he's meeting all those people. (laughs) No, I mean, of course you can. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: also neither can
0: anybody else because he's meeting all these people who were his kind of contemporaries and they've all gone to seed a little bit. They've got no hair. And at the start, of course, Ned looks like this kind of champion of men, champion the Wonder Horse <laughs> <Yeah>. of men. <laughs> champion of the Wonder
1: Horse. Oh. But
0: you know, it's. I think it's. I think it's a real. Uh, Burt Lancaster made a made a lot of films, and he had a lot of kind of jewels in his crown. You know, he won uh, the Oscar for Elmer Gantry. Yep. He was famously in From Here to Eternity. Yep. Didn't matter about his swimming being rubbish in that one because you know they were just in the He's shallows on the beach, just on the beach, <laughs> just on the beach. Um, but. He made his debut in 1942 in no, sorry, 1946 in The Killers, and his his last film, although he did TV afterwards, was Field of Dreams in 1989. Wow,
1: of course it was. Um,
0: so in between, you know, he's got these kind of milestones of 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 cinema. He's a real he's a real kind of mensch of cinema, and it's always absolutely. it's always better, isn't it? For me personally, when you find out somebody was like a mensch and a good guy in real yeah, life, and yeah, not some absolutely. not some awful kind of
1: yeah right wing yeah. Nightmare. I'd, yeah. I'd
0: rather he was on Nixon's enemies list than Nixon's friends Friend list. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so, what are we thinking then, Lindsay, about the marking for this?
0: Yeah. Well, as you know, we like to give each each film on uh, what's wrong with this picture its own specific rating system, and this one, Gary, we're looking at marks for quality, marks for weirdness, and it's out of ten dry martinis.
1: Go. OK, all right. So for me, um, for quality, uh, it's 8 out of 10 dry martinis. And for weirdness, it's 9 out of 10 dry martinis.
0: Do you know what? I cannot I cannot uh, complain about those numbers. I'm the same.
1: Yeah, excellent, excellent. So I think what we're saying about the swimmer is... Um, please 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 do get dig it out please do watch it um even if you have to do a dog leg at the second swimming pool on the left in order to walk around to the uh to to the dvd store um uh, because there apparently is a really good blu-ray version of it now Uh, i hope you've enjoyed uh, our conversation about the swimmer
0: yeah thanks and see you next time
1: what's wrong with this picture is brought to you by lindsay mcculloch and gary mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Keffert.